I'm Sai, and I'd like to invite you into the Library of Impossible Things. The library is a place where I collect items from Doctor Who fans, which they love, and I collect their stories too. And today I'm really pleased to have my friend and my first guest from outside the UK. It's the lovely Stephen B. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Sai. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to this. And how honoured do I feel to be the first non-UK guest on your podcast? Thank you. Well, it's kind of appropriate because I think you were one of the first people I spoke to about this idea when I met you in the UK in 2022. So it's really <laughs> lovely to have you here. And you were one of the first people who said, oh, yeah, I've come on. I've got a really good idea for an for a <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So, Stephen, what's your object? Oh, gosh. I don't think this is going to be a shock to anyone who knows me, but I would like to bring into the Library of Impossible Things uh, the entire range of Target novelizations. Uh, and if I needed to pick one, it would be this one here that I'm holding up to the camera for Sai to see, which is, of course, oh, Castro of course. by Christopher H. Bidmead, which I think is perhaps symbolic of the entire range. And I can't, I can't pick one necessarily. Uh, and I think the Target range has been so important in my life that I couldn't exclude them. But this one here, you know, Castro Valdry is certainly uh, a top 10 for me. And has sort of stayed with me for, for decades now. So that's what I would like to bring and, and to enshrine into this hallowed space, uh, the target novelizations and the importance of which to me, I think, um, will probably become clear over the next uh, little while. Well, yeah, well, they're absolutely vital to your story, aren't they? So I think yours is, is a fairly unique one as far as I'm aware. So and the Castrovalva novelization is something absolutely wonderful and certainly one of my favourite novelizations. I love Christopher H. Bidmead, as you know. Yeah. So is there, what is it about Castrovalva that is, is special for you? There's many ways that I could explain this, but I think one of the ways that I could is just to sort of say when we first met, it was actually at Castrovalva or near enough to it when, when we went with Joe to the filming locations. Um, and, you know, for, for me to sort of do that sort of illustrates, I guess, you know, come halfway across the world to, to not just, uh, you know, uh, see Castrovalva, but to meet you two as well, um, sort of the importance of, of, of Castrovalva, but um, I guess the importance of, I guess, the, the friendships that I've made over the last few years through podcasting and through Twitter and particularly through Hamster as well. But, you know, the importance of Castrovalva or the significance of it, I guess, is that it was a bit of a turning point in my life in many regards. Um, I'll, I'll probably explain this, that in a bit more detail as we sort of go along. Um, but it sort of marks a point in my life where I think I sort of move out of childhood into adolescence and start to really understand maybe how important Doctor Who becomes and has become in my life. Um, you know, it's, it's many decades since I first picked up my first target, which was my gateway into Doctor Who, um, and it's still with me. So, uh, yeah, it's obviously incredibly important to me. I think I think Castrovalva, because of just the uh, significance, I guess, that it has and a, a key uh, moment, I guess, in my life as well. And it was certainly a TV story that had a huge impact on me when I saw mm. it age six. This was suddenly mind expanding in the way that <laughs> Doctor Who is, that you've got these huge concepts that you can understand because they're told beautifully and simply. And the bit with the map, made it clear what was happening and is still oh, yes just me shivers down the spine every time i see that when when they're trying to locate the pharmacy and it's all the way around <laughs> yeah 
brilliant, simple writing from Chris Strange Midmead, and we don't often get to say that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. Come on then, Stephen. Your story is is really interesting. How did Doctor Who come into your life? Okay, so I, I guess for this, we need to go back to 1989, and I'm nine years of age, so I, I think you can do the maths to sort of figure out exactly how old I am now. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's kind of my first real exposure to uh, not just Doctor Who, but to reading, and, and reading proper books, not just Tintin comics, which um, were a big part of my early pre, uh, primary school uh, life. And, you know, to this day, I, I absolutely uh, love Tintin as well. It has that sort of nostalgic shine to it and sheen to it. Um, but these are the first books that I, I read in earnest and, and I read cover to cover and didn't have any pictures in them, apart from, you know, apart from some of the early targets that had those beautiful line drawings that were very evocative. But you know what I mean? These are, you know, 120 odd pages. And for a nine year old to challenge themselves, I guess, with it, but it be absolutely engrossed all the while. And, and with some of these books, not want them to end because the story was yes. just so wonderful. Um, it, it presents, I guess, just that moment in time where I... I I become or I start down a path that eventually leads me through to uh, literature and philosophy at university and postgrad and eventually becoming a teacher. And then uh, I guess, you know, just in terms of my current fascination and involvement with all things narrative, and that's the written word, that's the target novelizations, that's people like obviously Terence Dix, but many others as well. Malcolm Hulk was also um, central in those early years to me as well. It sort of comes from an uncharacteristically cold February morning uh, on the east coast of New South Wales growing up and finding uh, within a beautiful, quaint, uh, safe feeling and smelling even um, library, <laughs> primary school library, these, I think they were 27, 28 target novelization bound in those, you know, typical sort of school library plastic um, perspex covers or you know, whatever they are, the, the sticky back stuff. Um, and just the, the instant kind of adrenaline rush in seeing the covers, which were so evocative, you know, some of the Chris Achilles ones and, and later ones as well, and just being drawn to them in a way that I... There's a phrase that J.R. Tolkien uses upon, um, you know, reading... I think the the old Icelandic sagas, and I'm not I'm not a Tolkien fan, so I, I I shouldn't be held to this. But he says he recognizes the text on first sight, and that was kind of my experience with the target novelizations. I recognized what this was upon first sight, and that's that's hard to explain. I, yes, I'd seen snippets of Doctor Who on television before, but I'd never been drawn to it in the same way. It it kind of instead just sort of spoke to me in a way that was just critical at that point in time at nine years of age where I was looking for adventure stories and something that had a mythos and um, you know you've spoken about this before but the archaeology of 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 uncovering um, that mythos was was hugely exciting and done in that sort of piecemeal fashion initially through those 28 target novelizations that you know smelled of this fragrant paper and adventures and stardust I was hooked from the first moment um, and yeah, that, that experience has never really, really left me, I think. Um, and amongst those 28 titles, we're kind of looking at the sort of early run of the targets, right? So they were first imprints. They would have been the ones that were sort of released from um, 75 through to about perhaps 77 or so. And some wonderful covers and, and stories there as well. Um, but it wasn't actually me who, who borrowed the books in the first place. It was actually my brother. And 
he brought home Planet of the Daleks and Death to the Daleks. And there's no surprise, really, when you consider how glorious those covers are, how appealing they would be to a child's imagination, right? And I have to admit, we took it in turns. I read the, the Planet of the Daleks novelization first, and I wasn't too fussed by it. The cover was great, but um, kind of like the episode, I kind of felt it was a bit plotting. And I was waiting <laughs> for for Death to the Daleks, which my brother was saying, this is great, it's a wonderful story. And I think it was after reading Death to the Daleks that I would say, right, I'm I know that I'm going to spend a lot of time and effort and brain power and imagination in this world and just being instantaneously hooked in, in that regard. And that kind of led, I guess, to just reading the others, right? There was some incredible titles there, Terror of the Autons, Tomb of the Cybermen, Loch Ness Monster, uh, even things like Mask of Mandragora. And, and there was an old copy of the Zabi, if you can believe that. I mean, nine years of age reading that rather sort of dense 1950s style kind of prose certainly isn't for kids is it um but no i remember that being a really difficult read when i was was young and one that i would put off because it seemed really big (laughs) (laughs) yeah it kind of felt grown up didn't it it was like oh this is kind and maybe as a result of that um you know again sort of challenged me to sort of um really get you know try and read it and and the more that i read the more that i was engrossed and Seems a bit silly now, doesn't it? Like nobody really likes the web planet, or if they do, they like it in a way that's, you know, perhaps a bit, um, what's the right word? Not patronising, but, you know, we, we sort of admit its faults and love it because of its faults, not yeah, despite. exactly, yeah. But that, none of that's really there in the prose. I think it's, it's a really great adventure. And, of course, with target novelizations, the great thing is that there's no budget, right? The, the visualisations in your head are entirely up to you. I mean, <laughs> looked and just felt an incredible story um but the the ones that i particularly enjoyed at that time and you can imagine you know that sort of initial run of targets you know finding genesis of the daleks and and reading that it was the imprint with the purple uh logo on the front and that to me is kind of like still the right version rather than the initial uh red on the first imprint but wasn't that incredible? You know, Genesis of the Daleks told by, by Terence Dix. I, I listened to the audiobook of that not too long ago and I just thought, walked away thinking, yeah, this is top tier storytelling. Uh, there was no uh, question that I would be hooked, particularly after a story like that, right? No, exactly. I can remember my mum reading that to me. That was one of the, the earliest ones we read. It's gripping. And going, coming back to it as an adult, you can see Terence Dix has really paid attention to that one he's changed nearly every line to make it flow better he's he's worked really really hard on that yeah it's so great isn't it and that's probably true what you say isn't it I hadn't thought of that but he's working to make it better and he kind of does that in all of his targets actually when I think about it um but yeah you're spot on aren't you that's that's exactly why it sort of stands out as such a great novelization and could could maybe be along with the five doctors I think his his best um, mm-hmm. That and maybe the Auton invasion as well. Actually, I've, I'd have to throw that one in there as well. Um, but the, the the writer that sort of um, captured my imagination, uh, you know, beyond that sort of initial run, was Malcolm Hulk. And again, I'm sort of nine years of age, and I'm reading the Doomsday Weapon, which is. I don't know if you've read it. You must have read it, Sai. I'm sure. Oh, you I've have. Read, yeah, I've read them all. <laughs> <laughs> But again, kind of like the Zabi, 
it's not meant for nine years old, a nine year old. I don't think you know there are themes in that depictions in that that are, are certainly adult, not just in terms of its graphic nature, but the its concerns of you know the adult world. There's a projection of a of a sort of dystopian future of a hundred million people on Earth, and they're all kind of dependent on. Um, IMC and you know uh, the you know the company owns humanity in, in, in fact and I mean I don't know if I even really properly appreciated it at the time but certainly that sort of dystopian imagery stuck with me and kind of haunted me for a while as well um, but that was a great favorite of mine absolutely the doomsday weapon it's incredible sort of looking back that these were were authors taking what what they've done on tv and just expanding the world and you get that whole treatise on on religion in there and how they've forgotten yes. how to do a funeral and the doctor has to explain it to them and that marvelous passage of captain dent talking about life on earth where they're allowed to go up to, and see the the outside for half an hour or something and it's never the the same as when they're on the the travelator and seeing the images projected around them of what outside is like and exactly. all of that and who, how IMC gets to choose who who you marry and, and things mm. like that it's, yeah it's it's an incredible piece of work yeah definitely and you know those sort of the sort of way in which your life is controlled in the future really sort of perturbed me in a way that I didn't really fully understand the significance of it but you know just the idea that you would be so controlled was uh, yeah uh, uh, an incredibly haunting kind of um, feeling uh, walking away from that novelization you know and there are many others as well so space war I remember and the sea devils which is just a fantastic jolly romp and it was probably one of the last of the twenty seven or twenty eight or whatever it was that I read and it was the dinosaur invasion ah uh, mm-hmm. oh my goodness <laughs> <laughs> did you have the clack cover. No, this was the um, this oh. wasn't one of the original ones. So it was oh, the, okay. the beautiful uh, painting of the T uh, Rex on in, in St Paul's, which again is also yeah. very evocative as well. Mm-hmm. But I sort of I sort of walked away from that thinking how um, clever I guess you know the time travel aspect of it was um, the the morality of the Doctor. You know, there never was a golden age. All of that kind of stuff really sort of st- stuck with me as well. And I just remember reading reading it in the garden on this beautiful sunny, would have been a spring Saturday at some point, and just luxuriating. And again, one of those moments in time where I didn't want the story to end. Lads, I was getting closer and closer closer to the to the last page, just desperately wishing I could just continue to luxuriate. I guess in in this story, which so engrossed me. Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to paint, I guess, is that, you know, th- those sort of initial runs of the unit era and Hinchcliffe and Holmes target novelizations are kind of, well, I've said it before, they're my primary text of Doctor Who. I didn't grow up sort of memorizing musical cues and, you know, the um, actor's performance and direction and whatever else. I've, I've come to that later in life and I've had to sort of work at that because primarily Doctor Who is... A written text. It's a. It's it's told in in novelization form. It's there in front of me in terms of, you know, uh, the narrative structure, characterization, the use of setting, and um, you know, all of that kind of stuff that you know I probably benefited from reading those targets at such an early age when I went on to do um, literature, philosophy, and postgrad, and that kind of discourse and textual analysis. It, it kind of was inherent to my experience of Doctor Who from a young age and so was kind of the the building blocks that I could draw upon 
and and you know base my my um, tertiary education studies on as well. Yeah, it, it, just just a wonderful period of time and, and just a wonderful education at sort of nine, ten. It was through to about eleven years of age. We're talking about eighty nine to ninety one here, where I was making my way through, you know, the school library's target novelizations. It's very much the same for me that Doctor Who, as much as it was on TV, was about the books in my early life, and that was my big mm. collection. And you're right, you come away understanding narrative without realising you're understanding how a story is told, because although it get, he gets a lot of stick, Terence Dix's very simple 108-page novelizations are so tightly written that you understand how to write simply without sort of talking down to your audience. <laughs> it's it's so true, and it's so hard to write like that. I've tried. I, yeah. I write more like, you know, Christopher H. Bidmead's beautiful prose in, <laughs> in, Target, in um, Castrovalva than I do, you know, Terence's sort of tight mm-hmm. Terror of the Autons, Auton Invasion kind of style. And I'm so envious of that ability to be able to convey so much with so few words or you know the, the you know in in two or three sentences he's able to to you know paint oxley woods for you and sam Seely, you know creeping through the undergrowth and uh you know him surrounded by the 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 unit soldiers like all of this sort of stuff is like when you actually have a look at the the page count we're talking about like you know a quarter of a page sometimes that's all he needs i can't yeah. believe mm-hmm. how economical he is no, I mean, some of his best work, I think, is those first sentences that start the book off and that grip you straight away. I mean, I always remember the start of Invisible Enemy where it says, something was waiting in space. I mean, you just want to work, you want to find out what that is, what's going on. That's hooked you straight from the start, you know? It's so true. <laughs> There's so many of them, though. I mean, the, the classic one, obviously, is the Dalek invasion of Earth, you know, through yeah, the of ruins of a city stalk, the ruins of a man. That's an incredibly evocative line. Like, that could be the opening line of a, you know, Asimov or a um, Bradbury or, um, you know, like one of those sort of serious sci fi writers, right? Yeah. But, that's kind of what Terence was when we were mm-hmm. nine, 10, 11 years of age. He, he was, um, I know, I don't want to say Shakespeare, but like he was, you know, our storyteller. Um, and yeah, those, those sort of, um, that initial catalogue, I guess, of targets were, um, yeah, just, they still are, I guess, my home turf in terms of Doctor um, I will always go back to them in terms of the, the written prose, but also in, in more recent times, the audio books as well. Um, it's just a great way to relive that that period, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I I think the audio book range is is wonderful. It's one of my favourite favorite Doctor Who things to come out of the last sort of 20-odd years, that, that they've got people to come and read these books to me, like my <laughs> mum did when I was, was young. And it just sort of takes me back. I love being read to (laughs) (laughs) sort of within us i'm so envious of you having that uh that kind of experience i guess with doctor who with your mum reading to you um Mm -hmm. it was very much a solitary pursuit for me and you know what doctor who has been a largely solitary pursuit it wasn't until around about 2015 16 that i started to enter into fandom and you know, discover things like received wisdom and how how wrong it was. (laughs) (laughs) 
but oh, there's a lot of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what's really funny is to see how it changes over time as well. Um, uh, you know, the the way in which the gunfighters, for instance, is perceived or is perceived now as opposed to you know what it was would have been perceived in, in the eighties and the nineties um, is is really quite different, right? Um, yeah, but. I was kind of insulated against that. And in some regards, I, I feel like I've missed out on a lot. But equally, there's kind of a an arrogance, perhaps, is probably the right word in terms of being able to defend stories that I love because uh, I didn't have that fan wisdom and I could sort of come to my own conclusions, rightly or wrongly. <laughs> I mean... No, no, no. There's, I don't think there's any anything wrong about having your own opinions about <laughs> Yeah, and you know what? That's that's actually a really good point. I think one of the things that received fan wisdom, in particular, sort of relies upon is a sort of misconception. And here I'm drawing on you know my post grad studies around um, you know conceptions of truth in literature. Um, and I just want to rephrase that by saying people are looking for the absolutes in fiction, in art. I'm, I'm sorry, that's not what it's there for. <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> No, it's there for interpretation. It's spot on, exactly right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, uh, uh, you know, going later on in, in into sort of university life, it's the cogency of your argument, how well you can present it and develop it and uh, defend it. I guess that's the most important thing. So you know, when Fraser starts talking about how wonderful the Dominators are, and we all disagree with him, rightly or wrongly, um, he's able to do so because he's got his own reading of it, and that's absolutely subjective that's absolutely unique and it belies this fact that you can ever sort of print a book that influences an entire generation to think that um you know the celestial toy toy maker was any good (laughs) (laughs) even the book didn't convince me of that (laughs) (laughs) no no same um but yeah i i I feel as though, um, you know, that initial grounding, and I'm talking here about 1989 to 1991, sort of upper primary school years, absolutely fundamental to the trajectory of my life and um, in, in so many regards in terms of what I studied, you know, what I've eventually become, the people that I've met along the way just wouldn't have mm-hmm. happened if I didn't if I didn't sort of, yes, decide this is for me, this is absolutely where I'm yeah. going to go with my, you know, no doubt nerdy uh desperate need to to engage in something that is bigger than myself uh which is the mythos of doctor who so did you find it odd then finding the show as a tv show after reading the books i don't know if i found it odd i found it as though it was supplementary is that the right word possibly not yeah complementary probably is a better word to to the Doctor Who that I knew. And I was kind of lucky, and we all were in Australia, in the sense that Doctor Who seemed to be always on. There was always repeats that, you know, from from what my sort of recollection went from around about Robot through to uh, end of season 17. And I, I feel like I'd seen that in the background when I was a really young kid. Um, I never saw Davison or, or um, Colin... I didn't see Sylvester until the mid nineties. I mean, that was that was years after Doctor Who had even wrapped up. But it it kind of felt like I was able to maybe fill in the gaps in terms of stories that I knew existed 
but weren't available to me in, in target novelization form. So I was grateful for that. Um, but it, it never really felt like I'd graduated to the real thing. Like the real thing for me, I guess, were those target or not, mm-hmm. not that they had supremacy over them, but as I say, they were my first, they were my primary text of Doctor Who. And so watching it, finding it that it was on the telly and realizing, Oh, I'm a bit of a fan now. So I'm going to watch all of these. Um, there, there was a, a just a sort of natural extension, but equally, there there was times incredible disappointment. You know, when when you're able to sort of read the horns of Nymon and then see it on television, and you sort of think, oh, this isn't anything like I thought it was going to be. Not just in terms of production, but Toad as well, right? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's probably one of the the drawbacks, I guess, of having um, Doctor Who as a literary text first and foremost, I guess. Now that's not to say that I don't like the Horns of Nymon. I love it. I, I, but and I love it again because of its, you know, whatever you want to call them, insufficiencies or defects or, or, or flaws. But I do prefer the target novelization. Yeah, that was um, one of the first ones I bought. So that oh, really, yeah, that that and Nightmare of Eden are stories that I I knew I'd seen on TV, but the books take them into different. A different stratosphere almost like they're you could see what they were trying what the original authors were trying to do mm. that didn't quite translate properly to what was on tv and they're really <laughs> solid fantastic stories yes absolutely like the hordes and Imon's a wonderful story i think you know you know these notions of of you know failed empire and failed attempts at sort of re-establishing empire which is obviously a fool's errand um and the the way in which the Naimon pray. Now, what's that wonderful line from Wilde? When the, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. And that's kind of Sol Deed's, um, you know, character arc in, in, mm-hmm. in, in the story. Um, but, you know, it's it's difficult to sort of argue the sort of literary merits of, of Horns of Naimon to someone who, you know, just sort of sees the, it as a failed production, really, where, you know, one of the actors splits his pants falling down and <laughs> the set's absolutely wobble. Yeah, but you've got that incredible prologue where Terence sketches in the whole story <laughs> of Sconons in three pages. Yeah. <laughs> the whole history of this empire told in, yeah, incredibly... Yeah, absolutely. And again, as you say, three pages. Oh my god! Like if I tried to do that, it would it'd be a thirty-page sort of you know yeah. um, outline. I guess I couldn't do that. But beyond that, just the fact that he thought of doing that. You know, how do you tell a story the right way? Well, you know, it's kind of maybe a Star Wars principle. I'm not a Star Wars fan, but I think you know, there's you know that very famous sort of opening where that you get the sort of the history through the scrolling yes. text and it set it builds the world for you right that's exactly what the targets do so so wonderfully well um even up to like more recent versions like where we've had i want to get it right it's not john lydecker it's stephen gallagher redo um warrior's gate and again you've got that beautiful prologue which which just means i can better understand you know why they're here stuck in e-space and who the Tharals are and all the rest of it. Looking at it, it's an incredible body of work that we kind of take for granted in lots of ways because we've always had it and we don't realise how lucky we are I mean, compared to, to a lot of other fandoms and franchises or whatever. You know, they mm. haven't got this, which is 
is a very Doctor Who thing. Doctor Who works on the page as much as it does on TV. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I wonder whether it's because, you know, one of the things that Doctor Who foregrounds that maybe other shows, when I think about it, don't necessarily do is that you get the titles, you get Doctor Who, you get the name of the episode, and then you've got written by. Yes. And that, the again, the sort of foregrounding and the importance of the writer in the telling of the story, I guess, perhaps sort of lends itself to this idea of how how important, I guess, you know, storytelling is and, you know, authorship, I guess, is to Doctor Who. That perhaps, you know, you know, the bill, an episode of the bill doesn't or, you know, an episode of Law and Order doesn't. At least they all kind of feel the same and there isn't that sort of variation. They're procedurals by, by nature, whereas Doctor Who can be anything and it's what a writer will bring to, in terms of their vision of the show and, and, and what it can do and sort of stretch that elastic and sometimes it breaks and sometimes you sort of feel <laughs> like, oh, no, we've, we've definitely gone past the, the realms of what Doctor Who is. Um, hello, Mind Warp. But, you know, these are... <laughs> These are, these are failures by virtue of experimentation. And, and in some regards, that kind of keeps it, um, you know, fascinating. And, and, you know, I don't want to praise Mind Warp, but, you know, there, there are things that it does that I don't think you would find in, in, a, in a police procedural, for instance, or in a show like Suits where they make seven or eight seasons and it's the same story every, every week. So I just don't understand how people can watch something like that. It doesn't, make, um, it, it doesn't sort of set the imagination alight in the same way that Doctor Who does. No, and I think certainly in the classic series, I can remember the almost sort of excitement of seeing the name come up afterwards <laughs> and thinking... Oh, but I know this because he You've wrote recognized that one it. that I liked the year before. Or <laughs> this is the man Wonderful. who wrote Legopolis who's come back to do Frontios or, mm -hmm. or things like that. And you make those associations and you think, <laughs> ah, now this is this is good because I like what this writer does. And I like, and you, yes. as a child, you can't quite put your finger on what that is. But as you grow up, you sort of get that idea that actually... I like what David Fisher does more than I like maybe what someone else does. And, <laughs> and that's perfectly reasonable. And I respond to this better, but you don't, as a child, you don't, you don't get that. And those names were so ingrained in me as a youngster that I'd, I'd be reading sort of episode guides. I think, Oh, well, I will probably like this one because I liked the book of that, or I liked one of his other ones or, or, or whatever, you know? Mm. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, that kind of um, fascination with, with the writers, I think, is still... And it even happens with the new series, right? So you have someone like Maxine Alton who writes The Haunting of Villa Diodati, which I think is a masterpiece in many regards. And then to know that she wrote um, Village of the Angels, is it? The Flux episode? That's right, yeah. I, I was so looking forward to that. And it, it probably, you know, contributed to my enjoyment of that episode. I think it's a great episode as well. Not as good. To that sort of anticipation is like, oh, I know what I'm going to get here. It's going to be atmospheric. It's going to be, you know, a little bit clever. It's going to be just that the kind of conceptions or the preconceptions that you have about each writer, you sort of carry that into into your fandom and and, in, and your response to each of the, the episodes, I guess. And certainly with the books, what I found was they would be on the shelf in, in the public library that I borrowed them from. And suddenly there'd be next to there'd be other things by those writers as well. And so I think, well, if he's written a Doctor Who book like Terence Dix, I would find his other books that he'd written that weren't Doctor Who and 
come away and enjoy those as well. So he did a series called Ask Oliver, which were were mystery stories, which I just absolutely adored. Really? I'd never heard of these. Ah, I, I think there were only about six or seven of them. So it was a small series, but they were, were brilliant. And I picked those up because they were next to his Doctor Who books. And I just thought, <laughs> well, I like his Doctor Who books, so I probably like these. And that sort of leads you on into all this other work. And then sort of gradually you expand from the Ds and think, oh, well, there's Roald Dahl before Terence Dix <laughs> and, and, and things like that. So it sort of takes you on this journey of, of reading and reading more widely. You've, you know, you've just unlocked a memory for, my, for me, which is I don't think I've thought about it in decades. And this is exactly right. You, you, I, I don't know whether it was Terence or Malcolm Hulk, but... On the shelf right next to them, again, you know, because of the the way in which um, library systems work, there was a book in a range called, and you're never going to believe this, Roger Moore and the Crime Fighters, and it was about three kids. Did you ever read these? No, I never did. I've seen pictures of them. (laughs) I read, I think I read one or two, and you know what? They were pretty decent, and again, just absolutely aimed at nine-year-old kids, and the prose just carries you along, and the... You know, set piece after set piece, and you know, adventure after adventure. It was it was wonderful. You could sort of see the art of that kind of storytelling transfer from Doctor Who into something as outlandish as, as you know Roger Moore and, and three kids fighting crime. It was wonderful. <laughs> what a brilliant premise for a set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That kind of is the the first act, I guess, of, of my Doctor Who fandom, and I can. I can sort of go through, you know, various other sort of phases of my of my fandom uh, throughout the years, but all of them seem to be tied back to my relationship with the Target novelization. So, um, 1992, I go into high school, and it's that moment in time, I guess, where you sort of, you know, you start to mature in many regards, and, and it's the beginning of, of of adolescence in many in, in in obviously many ways. And there's a few things that sort of happen at that time that sort of move me into the, my next phase of, of fandom, and you know, really means that I am now on the road to incurable, um, you know, obsession with Doctor Who. <laughs> Having got to the end of them, I I sort of thought, well, what do I do now? Like, where do I get more Doctor Who? Because I know there's other stories and I haven't read these books. And I went to, uh, specifically to my, you know, first foray into a, um, uh, uh, into a bookshop looking for Doctor Who books. Uh, you know, now desperate because I, you know, the addict doesn't have his drug anymore and needs needs to find a new <laughs> hit. And I found, along with my brother again, it's a target book, but it's a bit of a cheat here. It, it was the Doctor Who quiz book. Have do you remember that sort of the eight graphics on the front, the black spine? I've, I bet you're reaching for it right it now. Is. You've got it right there. Like, what a hand. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. And it's Nigel Robinson. And yeah. the the world of wonder that that unlocked um, was incredible as well because now I started to st- appreciate not just adventure by adventure, story by story, novelization by novelization, but the shape of the show. And this was really instrumental because now I could start to fit the pieces in terms of the first Doctor through to the seventh, but also the the different production um, how, um, production teams behind it, and you know who the script editor was, and who you know who was working on the show and acting in the show and whatever else directing, and this was kind of like a bit of a cheat code in some regards. Um, 
in that it kind of had all of Doctor Who within its 128 pages or whatever it was. And you can imagine what this would do to, you know, I'm probably about 11 years years of age now, uh, just in terms of supercharging my my interest and, again, my obsession with the show um, because I've got now a bit of a blueprint about where I can go to next. And this coincides also with my uh, a gift I got uh, of the making of Doctor Who um, from the school librarian. And, and I was presented with this. And if, obviously, you know that that's, that text as well, but it's kind of got paragraph-long praises, synopses of each Doctor Who story up until, yes. I think, season four, 13, 14, yeah, something I think it's like on, that. Yeah, and a fear, I think, is where it goes up to. That's right. Yeah, series yeah. last story, and that I think might be the second edition. Um, but it's got Tom on the front in that in the kind of the target, the target uh, logo. logo yeah. Yes, <laughs> and again, beautifully evocative. Um, so so mesmerically sort of painted and drawn that it, you you can't help but be uh, drawn into it. But again, that sort of gives me an, a, an understanding of the, the shape of the show up until that point as well. So now I can start to cherry pick, well, which target novelization do I want to go after next? And that could be from the local library uh, or it could be I can order it from the bookshop now because I've got pocket money and I can <laughs> I can start <laughs> to, you know, collect my own target novelizations at home, which, you know, eventually I've got the final set, right? Uh, and still... To this day, one of my most treasured possessions. I don't have it here in Singapore, but it's safely under lock and key back home in Australia. And right, right too. Better, yes, and you better believe when I get back home and I start setting up my study, that's going to be pride of place. You know, those those target novelizations absolutely will be, you know, the centerpiece, I guess, of my my study. Uh, and I look forward to that day. But you know, to be able to sort of go out and 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 cherry pick um, these stories, and the other thing that's happening at this time, as I'm, you know, moving into high school, is that uh, the ABC here, uh, not here, back in Australia, start um, running for the first time that I've seen them anyway. The Davison years. So I don't know anything beyond what sort of spelled out in terms of the uh, the target um, Doctor Who quiz uh, quiz book. So I'm starting to understand. Okay, these are the titles at least of these stories, but I don't know too much about them. And so, again, this is where Castrovalva comes in. This is where, you know, Time Flight and Arc of Infinity and Five Doctors and Enlightenment and The Awakening, which I think is a great little novelization. Like, these are the stories now that are, and I, I it sounds so sad, but these are my new Who stories because I've never seen these before and I've never even read the Target novelizations before. Um, but, you know, I'm starting to find them and I'm starting to collect them. And my goodness... You know, the Davison Doctor, his portrayal, the sort of more, particularly the cerebral um, stories, you know, like Castrovalva, like Enlightenment, um, they all just sort of speak to me. And I feel as though, you know, 10 years after that era of Doctor Who, that this is, this is now what Doctor Who is for me as an adolescent. And Davison becomes my Doctor, not through accident or through timing, um, but out of choice. Um, this is a this is a, a character that has gone from a larger than life, absolutely infallible hero in the way that I sort of perceived my father at the time to someone who was youthful and perhaps callow in some regards and uncertain of his place in the universe. And hell, that was me. That was me at twelve years of age. And so that kind of um, identification, I guess, with 
Davison. And those stories, again, the, the sort of lyrical, beautiful, haunting, um, gorgeous stories like Enlightenment and Castrovalva and The Awakening just play into exactly, I guess, my sense of who I am at the time. Uh, yeah, it's that second phase of Doctor Who fandom, I guess, is very much bound, with, bound up with discovering Davison's Doctor, but also, I guess, discover, starting to discover who I am as an individual as well. Yeah, which is very much like Castrovalva of a new doctor <laughs> finding his finding out who he is after he's been someone else for a very, very long time. So yeah, there's so many parallels right. you could draw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and again, this this is I guess why Castrovalva again is such an important text to me. You know, it, it's very much comes along at exactly the right time. I find the novelization just before um, I sort of discover that Doctor Who's being repeated at 4.30 a.m. on Australian television. <laughs> and you better believe that's the moment in time that I discover how to actually set a VCR. <laughs> and, you know, just a glorious time of waking up really early, you know, waiting for everyone else to wake up, but hoping kind of that they don't so I can watch these 25 minutes of, yeah. of Davis and Doctor Who for the first time, just, just for myself, just mine at this point in time. Um, yeah, happy days. Ah, oh, that sounds awesome. So all this time, it was just your fandom then. It was it was something just for you. You didn't know other people who were, were into Doctor Who. I think that's largely true. My my brother, I don't think he was like a great fan. There was there wasn't the the same kind of level of attachment to it that I had. I mean, sure he read the the Dalek novelizations, but I don't think he cared too much for the others. I tried to sort of pass him Tomb of the Cybermen at one point to say, this is really good. And still one of those targets that I think is wonderful, the Jerry Davis novelization, but he wouldn't have a bar of it. I had a couple of friends who were into the show in primary school, but this is kind of what happens, right? You sort of realise that maybe this isn't the coolest thing to be a fan of when you're hitting 10, 11, um, and you sort of leave it behind. And I, in many regards, I was left behind. And that that's okay. That suited me. Like I was quite happy, like I say, to sit outside in the garden on this sunny spring day and read the dinosaur invasion. I didn't really sort of feel, feel as though I was an odd man out for doing so. It was kind of like my little thing. And and that solitary pursuit of Doctor Who, I think, is quite common for a lot of Doctor Who fans, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, my story is kind of different in that regard in that when I hit secondary school, I found a fellow fan at at mm. sort of 12 years old and suddenly that took it into a different direction for me mm. that it wasn't just mine and that was sort of the cusp between everyone leaving Doctor Who behind post-trial and sort <laughs> of, um, not coming back after that but I found someone who who loved the show as much as I did but in a in a different way and so you get your mind expanded by having those conversations with people and swapping the books that you hadn't got and, and things like that so yeah I mean, that's my story and that's how I've always felt my fandom was but I hear other so many other people who who didn't have someone else to talk to about it and think well <laughs> I'm quite lucky then <laughs> I think you may have been. I certainly talked at people about it. That's, that's... <laughs> yeah. Well, I did that too. <laughs> <laughs> but to sort of have those sort of nerdy conversations again, I'm quite envious. In the same way that you know your mother read to you um, the mm-hmm. target novelizations as a kid, to have had, particularly during secondary school, I guess, um, a friend to to bounce those ideas off would have been wonderful. 
Um, but I never really sort of let it perturb me. Like I just thought, well, this is what I'm into and this is what I'm into. And I had, um, you know, many other sort of social circles that I was able to join. You know, I was also around about this time massively getting into football, English football, because that was also on the telly. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm, I, I'm still absolutely in love with, with, with football to this day. It was the pursuit that allowed me to make friends and join in and, you know, play in the schoolyard and after school and all the rest of it. And so maybe as a result of that as well, that I had this, it was not my secondary hobby, it was one of my many hobbies, I guess, and interests, that kind of um, was the, uh, maybe the social glue, I guess, in some regards, right? Like there's, there's a lot of boys at that age, 13, 14, that, that get into football in a big way, and I guess I was mm-hmm. one of them. But yeah, Doctor Who didn't, wasn't one of those um, avenues to, to socialise, and definitely not. <laughs> And it was the 90s as well, so there wasn't new Doctor Who to keep you going and to pick up new people who would, would get the interest either. So that makes it sort of doubly difficult. That's so true. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's a bit of a shame. Like, I felt like I'd, I'd probably been born too late in some regards or even too early when I think about it now in hindsight, right, with what Russell did in 2005 yeah. and how enormous that came. And that was just like, yeah. damn it, where was this 10 years ago? Because this is what I really needed. But at the mm-hmm. time, pe- people didn't really care about what was, even back then, archive television and relegated to 4.30 in the morning on ABC, which nobody watched in the first place, even at primetime, let alone at 4.30 in the morning. Um, but, you know, they were watching X-Files and they were watching, you know, other sci-fi shows that were, you know, later on Buffy, right, um, that yeah. had an enormous appeal. But, yeah, Doctor Who kind of felt like a forgotten thing and I was happy to just have it as my own little thing. So what's your next phase then? Where do you go after this? <laughs> so, so I'm now moving into, um, I guess, senior secondary, right, and even into university. And these are sort of 1995 through to 2001. And I finished off many of the targets. There's not all that many left. But I'm also working through a lot of the maybe for more forgotten ones, and in particular the Hartnell stories. So I remember making a conscious decision that I'm going to spend my pocket money on getting Hartnell novelizations that I knew were of good stories, or at least that I determined for myself were good stories, um, and and go through them sequentially. So um, I remember getting the Daleks, for instance, I think it was in the winter of 1995, and just going, oh, what's this? This is a first-person narrative, and it's so different to the rest of Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. But it was really funny because that wasn't the first kind of um, Hartnell target that broke the mould. I think about the Romans, but in particular the Myth Makers, which, my oh, yeah. God, I adored that. See, I, I didn't like that as a kid because I oh. didn't get what it was doing mm-hmm. because I was just slightly too young. So I think I read that at 11 mm. and it just went over my head. But coming back to it as an adult, I absolutely adore it. I think it's one of the the best of the whole range, but I wasn't ready for it at the time. I think that's a really good point, Si. I think at 11, it would have thrown me as well, right? Because it's not the claws of Axos. It's not Terrence, no. and it's not proper. Mm-hmm. It's telling a story yes. in the wrong way. <laughs> and the Romans, the Romans, I said, was the worst novelisation of the whole lot because I just <laughs> didn't get it. Because, again, I was, was 12, 13, and was not quite ready for that. But... Mm. 
I re- recently got the the audio book, and that's the first time I've touched it since then, and it's magnificent. It is so <laughs> and so funny, but I wasn't ready for Donald um, Cotton at that age. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And you know, I'm I'm sort of like um, fourteen, fifteen now. And so picking it up is is just oh this is great I, you know the first person narrative works because I guess I was familiar with it in terms of the Whitaker book that I'd read not too long uh, before, but also the other thing that really makes it so memorable I guess is that I conflated in my mind with the series that Tony Robinson did and we had it here on Australian television I think in the early nineties where he tells the story of Odysseus. Um, through the Iliad and the Odyssey, oh, and yes. he's actually in situ, like he's on the, the plane of Scamander, you know, he's on the Greek islands and he's yes. telling these stories in a way that, you know, obviously kids would uh, just absolutely lapping it up. And and that I found in, you know, Homer supposedly um, narrating through first person the myth makers was just like, oh, this is wonderful. This is exactly like Tony Robinson with that sense of um, subversive humour and, you know, po- poking fun at, at uh, myths and legends that are otherwise, you know, very uh, epic, I guess, rather than than comic. Um, yes. So yeah, that that's a huge, huge favourite of mine to this day. And all those anachronisms that he throws in <laughs> is brilliant. That that are are wonderful. Yep. And it's, again, exactly the same thing that Tony Robinson does in in his. And I, I wonder if actually whether that series is in any way influenced by the Cotton Book because I think that comes out eighty seven, eighty eight. Not sure exactly when the Robinson Tony Robinson retelling of it is, but anyway, just an idle thought there um, mm-hmm. around who influences what. Um, but you know, the other targets that I discover at that time. And, you know, these are the kind of lost years. Like, even now, these episodes don't exist, but the Dalek Master Plan, which I could only ever get the first book of. So the oh. second book was like, oh, I wonder what happens then. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until much later in life that I sort of came across that one. The Celestial Toymaker that we talked about before, which even yeah. I, I tried to like it, but it really <laughs> isn't enough of a story. I think it really lost me when, you know, they were hunting for the key in the pie, and I just thought, this is this is silly. This is, and again, I'm 15, <laughs> probably 16 at this time. I was like, what am I doing reading this? <laughs> but then I get to something like the war machines, which, oh my God. And, and at, at this time, I guess I'm starting to appreciate different contexts for what they were. Um, and, you know, the idea of sixties, you know, 1960s London is, is such an alluring myth um, it probably never existed. Um, and later on, not too much later from this point in time, maybe five years or so, I discovered the Avengers and, and sort of falling oh, over all yeah. over again and the prisoner. But, you know, that period of, of, of time and television and, and, you know, the cultural zeitgeist of London from 1965 through to about, you know, 68. Wow. What a, what a beautiful sort of reflection of that in, in the war machines is still to this day, one of my favorite, um, novelizations, Ian Stewart Black, I think, um, doesn't write the same economy perhaps as, as Terence does, but I can really get lost in that world. And, um, another favorite of mine, definitely the war machines. Brilliant. And you're reading that about the same time as London is becoming cool again. 
over here in that sort of 90s area. So there we go. There's all these ties. <laughs> That's so true. Absolutely. You know, when I was reading it, it was during Euro 96 and yeah, staying so up that, late that, at that, night. Yeah, where it, it's all, all starting. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and Cool Britannia is cool yes. again. You know, Oasis and Blur, you know, I guess we're sort of leading up to um, you know, the the general election and, you know, Tony Blair's new Labour and, you know, look how that turned out. But, you know, the optimism at the time was significant and, mm-hmm. and London was became, again, a cultural capital in a way that it hadn't for a long time, right? England were, uh, again, you know, back onto the football thing, but, you know, watching England have some measure of success for the first time in many years was on home soil was it was great yeah you could cut. you could feel it i wasn't a i'm i wasn't <laughs> a football fan but you got swept along with it you know because yeah. it was just there and everyone was was sort of willing it on absolutely but it's Badil and skinner right and 30 years of hurt and it's it's evocative again of what happens in 1966 in during that golden period England will win the world cup at wembley against west germany 4-2 and it's it's one of those sort of Totemic myths, and here is it here repeating yeah. again in 1996, you know, and oh, I guess I just swept along, I guess, by that whole thing. But yes, I'm reading the War Machines at the right at the same time. Absolute serendipity, um, but yeah, huge, huge memories attached to to, to that as well. Um, but I kind of get to the end of the targets at this point, and you know, I I don't know if I've read even to this day something like the Crotons, for instance, and I guess I will one day because you know this. There's always something to look forward to. But I, I wasn't particularly, you know, looking forward to the stories that I thought probably weren't going to be as good as, as the others. Um, so whilst I would read The Invasion, for instance, I, I wasn't going to go and read um, The Dominators necessarily. <laughs> Sorry, Fraser. <laughs> um, and, and so now I'm starting to transition out of the targets but into The Missing Adventures. Did you read oh, these okay. at all, so? Oh, I did, yeah. I devoured the, the whole <laughs> Oh, I would say the whole lot. There are still some that I haven't read to this day, but mm. they're all on the shelf <laughs> waiting. Yeah. For that I think, oh, maybe, maybe now is the time to go back and read those six or whatever that I haven't read. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, for me, it was one of those things where, like, uh, I had pocket money, but I also was so deep in over my head that I couldn't help but, but buy all of them. I did read all of them and I often wonder now why I did that because there's probably half a dozen <laughs> that are any good. And the mm-hmm. others are really awful on, in hindsight. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think about Cold Fusion, um, which I think is a great story. There's many others, but the one that really I think is top of the tier is The Empire of Glass, the first Doctor oh, Stephen yes, and Vicky which story. which was one I came to late. I only read that a couple of years back. Oh, interesting. Okay, so, yeah. so again... This sort of, it, it's released at the same time that I'm going through my Hartnell sort of progression through the target novelization. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of love and kind of, you know, when people our age talk about Hartnell as being their doctor, they've discovered Hartnell as their doctor. I totally get it because at that time yeah. I was also understanding exactly how wonderful this sort of grandfatherly figure who was, you know, stern and cross at times, but also incredibly funny and an and adventurous young at heart was as well. And, and, Empire of Glass, I think, sums that up beautifully. I think it's such a gorgeous book. And it's not until maybe five or so years later when I'm in university and I come across Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, which is one of the texts that's cited by Andy Lade in the back of the book as being a, a huge inspiration. And he calls it, the, you know, possibly 
is it does he call it the most beautiful book he's ever read or one of the most beautiful books he's ever read um and I, I i would go further than that i think invisible cities is the greatest piece of western literature written after the second world war it is superb wow and i've never read uh, it i will have to look it up yeah, I mean, honestly, it's it's very thin and it's made up of a series of vignettes that are no more than three, four pages long, often a one page. And <clears throat> all of these vignettes are supposedly stories of towns and cities and places that Marco Polo has visited as he recounts it to Kublai Khan in his palace of Xanadu. And every, I think, four or five times throughout the story, you get a flashback well, not a flashback, but a cut back to present time with, with these two talking to one another and, and Polo telling his stories of these travels. But what becomes increasingly clear, very early, in fact, is that these are cities that could never have existed. Kind of like uh, Homer telling the story of um, the myth makers, it's full of just anachronisms and impossibilities that would have been, you know, just undreamt of. You know, he starts talking about airports at one particular point and one, one city is, is, is likened to just being a... Uh, you know, a series of airports. Um, incredibly beautiful, incredibly smart. Italo Calvino is, I would say, my favourite writer of the 20th century, of post-modernity anyway. Um, and there's one story in particular that stands out, and I, I may as well recount it here because it does have a sort of uh, echo of Doctor Who at least, but I think it's one or two pages long. And he says, you know, upon travelling to the city of Thecla, the visitor or the traveler will discover a city enshrined in scaffolds. You can't actually see the city for the scaffolds. And if should you ask any of the, the citizens, you know, what is it that you're working towards, they won't be able to stop for you until nightfall. And that's when, you know, the work ceases and they're able to rest. And you're and he says, you know, he's able to ask one of the citizens, what is what is it that you, what is all this activity? What is it that you're building towards? What is the plan? And you know, one of the, the, the citizens of Thekla points up to the sky, to the stars, and says, there, that's the plan. Uh, it's just one wow. of the most gorgeous two pages of literature I've ever read in my life. And I feel like every time I get to the end one of one of those short vignettes, I spend five times as much time thinking about the significance of the story than, <laughs> than reading it. You know, and, and, and that one in particular, it's like this idea that there would be a city or a town somewhere on earth that is trying to basically, you know, replicate heaven on earth through its construction of its city is just a glorious, beautiful idea. But yes, anyway, the, um, the empire of glass very much sort of influenced, I guess, by, um, uh, the invisible cities, obviously Marco Polo being a citizen, uh, of, of Venice and the story empire of glass being set in Venice. So highly recommend both of those books to anyone who hasn't read them. We're off target at this point, but this is kind of where I am in terms yes. of my own uh, trajectory, I guess. And it's we're now starting to sort of leave behind the targets. The Misk Adventures come to an end sometime in 1997, is it? 1996? Yeah, around early 97, I think. Yeah. Yeah, with the loss of the license um, from Virgin back to, and the reversion of it back to the BBC. Uh, and I go through to the BBC. Um, Eighth Doctor Adventures. Um, and have you, did you collect these as well, Sai? Oh, yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> long, long journey. <laughs> All the way through to the end. All the way through to the very end, yep. Wow. See, I didn't, I didn't last that long. I think I used the Ancestor Cell as a bit of a, um, 
a, a close of the chapter on that one for me. So what was that, 2001, 2002, around about mm-hmm. then? And I didn't sort of continue on after the burning. I probably should have, and I'm going back and read, reading some of them. I just finished The Year of Intelligent Tigers by Kate Orman, which is gorgeous. That's a, that's a yeah, beautiful that was book. Yeah, a good one, that was. Um, and I'm starting on – I've deferred this for as long as possible because my favourite author of that range is Paul Mars, and I'm starting Mad Dogs and the Englishman as we, as we oh, speak. Brilliant. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> oh. Well, what a yeah. treat. <laughs> well, I absolutely loved Scarlet Empress and, and the Blue Angel, um, mm-hmm. and I, I'm kind of sad that – I don't think there are any more Eighth Doctor Paul Mars books after after Mad Dogs and Englishmen, so I'm going to save no. this one. I'm going – I'm going to take my time with it. Again, you know, the the nine-year-old kid in the back garden not wanting the dinosaur invasion to end. I think it's something similar here with uh, <laughs> Mad Dogs and Englishmen. But, yeah, I, at this point I've sort of graduated and I've got to go into the real world and I actually start teaching and I'm doing my postgrad at the same time. Uh, and this is kind of where that foundation, I guess, in Doctor Who narrative and, and novelizations becomes really important because the five sort of conventions of narrative are second nature to me because I've internalised them by just reading so many of these target (laughs) novelizations, And I've also got an appreciation of the shape of the show. But with that, I guess, the context, what we were talking before about, you know, how 1960s um, swinging London circa 1965 to 68 feels very different from Britain, say, during the three-day week during Pertwee or, you know, the, the inflation crisis of season I guess, 15, 16, 17 of Tom, right, through to Thatcher in the 80s and what that does and how that impacts, you know, a sayward vision of Doctor Who and all of these things are starting to become clear to me. It's it's not just textual analysis, it's discourse analysis, contextual Mm -hmm. analysis. And all of these things are absolutely critical in terms of, you know, post-grad particularly, but even undergrad literary analysis and and, and and literary theory, I guess. Um, and that kind of structure, an under, inherent understanding of that structure is something that actually makes me a better teacher because I'm now modelling how to um, analyse T.S. Eliot's poetry and how do you write a seven-page essay uh, response to that under exam conditions. And I, I wouldn't be able to do that, I don't think, if I didn't pick up those target novelizations. And more important than that, I don't think I would have been interested in the first place if I hadn't sort no. of started down that path that starts with Terence and leads me to postgrad you know, literary discourse, I guess. No, I was exactly the same. I did an English literature degree because mm-hmm. my love of reading had been instilled in me so early on through those Terence Dix books that that just yes. seemed natural, that I just kept on reading and reading different stuff and keeping going and finding all these other authors, but having an inbuilt understanding of how stories worked. Absolutely spot on, yeah. And I think, I mean, you could definitely get that through watching the television show. I've, I've no doubts about yeah, that. And, but mm-hmm. again, the primacy of the, of the written word just forces you to be super conscious of that. Initially, as a, as a way just to sort of understand the building blocks of narrative, right? Beginning, middle, end, something as simple as that. Yes. But then how that transforms into understanding the three-act narrative structure and, you know, how an orientation and an exposition ends with the first turning point that 
brings you into the rising action. Then you've got you know, the, the, the structure there of that three-act um, narrative, I guess, structure is, is super important, but so internalised because of the target novelizations. How to open and close and how to stop the story and how yes. but the story goes on. And all those things about those Terence Dix novels where it would finish with the Doctor and his friends were off to a new adventure. Just, it's carrying on. But this one has stopped, but this the bigger story carries on and just sort of placing all of that sort of within it was, was so exciting as a kid. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> as an adult, it seems as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I still get the same sort of adrenaline rush uh, to this day, right? Mm-hmm. Like that, even just sort of like um, remembering, never mind sort of partaking in that, what you've called the archaeology of Doctor Who um, in that yeah. episode that you had with Joe. Like it's it's super critical, I guess, to the experience, that lived experience of, of being a Doctor Who fan. Um but yeah, that, that period of my life lasts about 10 years and, you know, there's no target novelizations. Um, Doctor Who's back on the telly and, you know, I've had some great sort of experiences and memories from that, you know, watching it with old girl, an old girlfriend in particular and, you know, how that sort of explodes, like we were saying before, into becoming just the biggest show on television and, you know, Woolworths being stocked with Doctor Who toys. I mean, where was this, <laughs> like I say, 10 years ago? What a great time that was. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, it, it was so unlikely, but we all kind of knew that Doctor Who could do this because it had done it to us. But it seems yeah. so unlikely that it would grab everyone like that. Mm, yeah, exactly right. I mean, to sort of go on a bit of a tangent here, I think, and I've been saying this for about 10 years as well, that Doctor Who will one day become basically the next Game of Thrones, an absolutely global phenomenon when it's put on effectively a Disney Plus, right? Sort of a, a mm-hmm. channel that can that can fund it, but also a, uh, a platform that can reach those hundreds of millions of people. And this is where we will go, I'm certain of it, under Russell uh, RTD2, if you like. But back to, to Target, I think it's probably around about 2012 at this point where I discovered the audiobooks and I couldn't believe it. I was like, it, again, that sort of adrenaline rush, that headlong dive back into childhood, those those covers coming to life and the stories being read to me by Liz Sladen and Tom Baker and Peter mm-hmm. Davison and even Christopher H. Bidmead, you know, wonderful. Yes. I know. Christopher H. Bidmead reading Logopolis was just like, oh, of course. <laughs> it's you know? so good. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. But I remember yeah. the, the day that I, I, I discovered them, I... I was like, I have to get all of these and I have to listen to all of these. And um, at that time, I was preparing for a 12K fun run um, uh, back home in Perth. And I, I was running at nighttime. And, you know, this is sort of in the dead of winter. You know, there's not a lick of wind on these cold nights in Perth. And I just put the headphones in. And I can't tell you how charged my body was with adrenaline listening to um, Peter Davison read he's changing said Adric the doctor's regenerating and that entire novelization of Castrovalva unfolding in my ears as I'm running through the night I mean I had the biggest smile on my face again my body is just riddled with endorphins 
and I just felt like I could run forever and I wanted to. I didn't want to stop until the, the novelization was read in full uh, or I, you know, killed over from exhaustion, whichever happened first, I guess. <laughs> but what a day that was to discover those target audiobooks again and, and relive in a new form, right? Because I've read mm-hmm. these over and over again, but to have these read to me. I remember listening to um, The Giant Robot read by Tom Baker oh. on a flight to New Zealand when I couldn't sleep on the plane. And there was just me listening to this. And it was just like the most comfortable thing in the whole world hearing Tom <laughs> read this to me. <laughs> yeah, that is particularly beautiful. And, you know, with Tom's readings of the novelizations, he breaks character. It's Tom smiling as he's enunciating, or you know, yes. having a bit of a having a bit of an aside as as an actor would, you know, in Shakespearean times on the stage. It's so wonderful, and you know, sometimes something will please him so much he'll just laugh to himself, and he can't help but just fall more no. in love with Tom Baker as a result. Oh, that that moment where I think it's the Brain of Morbius book where he reads out the changing face of Doctor Who, and he just turns <laughs> at the end and just says. Me, <laughs> it's just brilliant. It's, it's just so, so good. good. <laughs> and again, if anyone hasn't dipped their toes into this, please do so. Um, I mean, I, I can think of a number of titles, and 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 so I help me out here as well. Like, give me your favourites. But there's some beautiful productions, I guess, and you know, the story marries up with the uh, the narrator and the soundscape with it. Yeah, but there's some glorious so examples. There's... Um, I always think of Martin Jarvis reading the Dinosaur Invasion, which was that's exactly absolutely true. spot on. Oh, or so good. Stephen Fawn reading the Myth Makers, and mm-hmm. if it, Stephen Fawn's got nothing to do with the story, but he's such a brilliant audiobook narrator. Yeah, it works. <laughs> and bizarrely, I always think of Bonnie Langford wrangling with Pip and Jane Baker um, <laughs> prose. And coming out on top and and defeating their pros <laughs> and sound like it's perfectly natural in the way that unfortunately Nicola Bryan didn't quite do with Mark of the Rani, but Bonnie just mm. seems to to get it. And mm. Peter Purvis, I think, was very good. Yeah, because he's got such a comforting voice, and the ones he's done were were really great. And he does a wonderful Hartnell as well. Yes, yeah, which which really helps. So, yeah, I, I, there are just so many. But I, one of my favourites, I think, is Elizabeth Sladen doing um, Planet of the Spiders, which is just mm. so beautiful. And just having hours of her voice reading to you is just <laughs> just lovely. Yes, absolutely. I, I particularly love The Invasion as well. I think it's Michael Troughton um, that narrates that one. I might have to yes. double-check that. It's Michael my or David, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Oh, I have to double check now, but uh, apologies if I got that wrong. But again, that Ian Martyr novelization is so yeah. good. But the production around that, you know, and, you know, Trout and Son really doing, you know, Pat just beautifully. And the, mm-hmm. the production again and the score around that, the sound effects. Oh, I really, I mean, I, I could happily, I often do this. I'll go for a long walk and I'll go, what am I in the mood for today? And it's the target novelizations. And, the invasion in particular is a, is a big favourite of mine where I'll just go out for four or five hours on a long walk and have this in, in my ears. And, gosh, it's probably, you know, 
it's it's better than therapy, I think, in some regards. <laughs> That's Doctor <laughs> Who for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it just takes me back to, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of feeling of safety and, and childhood, I guess, that we've spoken about before, definitely. And I'm not ashamed of that. Like, I, I think there's there's great value in being able to sort of be in touch with whether you want to call it your inner child or whatever the case is. But, you know, that's the period in my life where it all began, the sense of wonder and, you know, the the spark of, of you know, the things that would later become fascinations professionally, academically, socially as well um, mm-hmm. in, in recent times through through finding people like yourself through my Doctor Who fandom. this lead into you podcasting then and new to who yeah yeah so i mean with with new to who it was one of those things where we uh cole dan and i would regularly come over to my place i had a projector set up in the sort of beautifully sort of dark room and they'd come over on a tuesday night um as the sun is setting we'd order a couple of pizzas we'd have crisps while we're waiting and uh you know they'd often you know have a, a few beers each um, I wasn't a big, I'm still not a big drinker, but, you know, every now and then I'd, I'd partake. But it was really just the three of us having miraculously found each other and not just as Doctor Who fans, but as really good friends. Like we were, we were, I was friends with Dan before I, he, we sort of came out to what each other as Doctor Who fans. <laughs> it was a similar story with Dan and Cole as well, where, they were at work together and somehow the story goes that one of them let slip that they knew about the Virgin New Adventures. And I think at that point, like, you've nailed your your colours to the mast, haven't you? you? You've basically said, I'm a massive Doctor Who nerd and really I'm there's, there's you know, no casual reader picks those books up. This, it's just not possible. You're a Doctor mm-hmm. Who fan. And so we're just sort of sitting there and, you know, you, you talk and you laugh and you giggle and you make, you know, interesting points um, with one another about what you're watching on the, you know, on the on the projector there, and I was listening to FTE. This would have been about 2014, and absolutely mesmerised. Love. I, I absolutely still to this day think it's my favourite podcast. And you know, Richard and Nathan and Brendan and occasionally Todd. And I thought this is wonderful, and it's wonderful because it's three, four friends who are friends first and foremost, but also just incredibly knowledgeable about Doctor Who and wonderful to listen to. And I thought, I'd love to do this, not in a way where I think, oh, we can emulate this or, or whatever the case is, just in terms of, this sounds like fun. Wouldn't this be a great thing to do? Like, we're doing it now. If we had microphones in front of in front of us, I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure people would listen. You know, even if there's only five of them, that would still be fun. And I guess that's kind of, that kind of led us to, to do what we did, particularly in that first season, and then, you know, expanding that to sort of have guests as, as Cole, you know, just had way too much to do. Um, you know, we, we, we interviewed and, and sort of recorded with Paul Cornell and yeah. uh, you know, he reached out to us. That was unbelievable. And, you know, we got to talk with Andrew Carmel and, again, Christopher H. Bitweed. I was like, how is this possible? How, how are we so lucky? And it's just by virtue of the fact that, again, um, we just we just wanted to give it a go. It just sounded like fun, and and really from that again meeting you know people like Brendan and and James and and Nathan and and and, and Richard and, and and Todd. You know, our friends and family in Sydney. So I used to go back quite often. So one time, it was actually during the time of the Doctor Who um, World 
whatever it was, but, you know, Peter Capaldi and Stephen Moffat were, were yeah. coming around. So, of course, my sister and I had to go to that and um, at the same time just sort of met up with those chaps and have been, you know, really just blessed by their friendship. And that sort of expands, obviously, to every other friend that I've, I've made through, like yourself, through Doctor Who in the yeah. meantime. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we were talking about this before, but at a time when in your 30s and now even 40s, I don't know how that's happened, um, men's social circles contract to a handful of people, of, of, of true friends, if that. Um, and the damage that that causes in terms of mental health issues by being, by virtue of feeling so isolated, I haven't had that in my 30s and now 40s. I, I just feel so blessed and so happy and so lucky to have actually seen my social circle expand, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so many times uh, over in that period of time. And again, why is that the case? Because I picked up a target novelization in 1989 as a nine-year-old, and here it's it's, it's led me to, you know, meeting yourself in in, in Castrovalva and, and and meeting Joe and actually going over there and you know spending time with him and. Um, you know, so many others across the world. It's it's been nothing short of really um, a blessing, I think. And I'm not particularly religious, and I don't know if I'm using the word in the right way, but I can't believe how lucky I am. Um, and it's all due to target novelizations. Ultimately, that's the root cause. <laughs> it's yeah. It when you you stop and think about it, it's it's amazing that this silly show or this <laughs> this series of books brings people together like that that you make these connections across the whole world that there is no way generally in life that our paths would have ever crossed generally i would imagine but (laughs) doctor who did that you know absolutely yeah um i I think also it's, it's kind of testament to what doctor who as a show does to people i i feel that it's an incredibly welcoming fandom, and I don't want to. It's actually not a fandom. It's it's a circle of friends and a, and a group yeah. of, of like-minded souls, kind souls, and they're kind, and you're kind, and others are kind because ultimately we've been transformed or at least shaped by the ethos of Doctor Who. Yes, I, I spoke about the mythos of Doctor Who earlier, but equally important, I think, is what it stands for. It's it's code of morality and ethics, which is. You know, Peter Capaldi puts it so wonderfully and Moffat so so simply. It's be kind. And mm-hmm. when you find that, I it just makes making friends so much easier and it makes the social group that you're in meaningful, I guess. You know, I've had many long, heart, you know, heartfelt conversations with with you know fellow fans that I've I've met over the last few years who have become friends in a way that I don't know if I don't know if I would have had that kind of friendship, I guess, at this point in my life with others that I hadn't met through Doctor Who. And it just goes back, I guess, to, again to that point about how Doctor Who has shaped us, how Doctor Who has made us better people. Ultimately, I really believe that. Yeah, I, I think you're you're definitely onto something there, and I think this is something that sort of hearing people talk about Doctor Who and their experiences and their lives with it is sort of really bringing out that it just gives you something that isn't necessarily tangible, but you, you sort of 
like you say, it's the ethos of the show that gives you something more, and the Doctor gives you something more. <laughs> it's it's really hard to put your finger on what it is, but it it is there. It's it's no wonder they say it's the indefinable magic of Doctor yes. Who that does something to you, you know, because it's yeah. really hard to define what it is, but we all kind of know what it is. Intuitively. I think that's spot yeah. on. Absolutely. Yeah. Good old Doctor Who. Yeah. So bring us up to date and see where are you now and and how is Doctor Who in your life in 2024? Wow. Obviously, okay. you're on a podcast right now talking about it. <laughs> so it's like a, a habit idea. I can't give up. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, and I, and I do so because I enjoy it, because I, I'm able to speak with um, you know similarly enthused and, and wonderful people like yourself who share in this passion and and. More, more importantly, I think, um, want to connect in a way that allows for a, a greater number of voices rather than, again, you know, let's go back to that sort of 1980s conception of fandom where this is the single and only reading possible of the gunfighters and it's, it's garbage, it's the worst Doctor Who story of all time and you know, Celestial Toymaker is a masterpiece. Like, we've come so far from that and... You know, one of the best things I think about podcasting is that every, not every so often, I reckon quite frequently, I'll be challenged in my beliefs about what I think I know to be true about a show and, again, a mythos that I've internalised over decades. And that makes me a better person in terms of, uh, in many regards, one, not just the, the idea that I can better understand or have other uh, data points, I guess, in terms of read mm-hmm. the reading of the show, but empathetically as well. Like, how am I able to respond to, react to, synthesize viewpoints that aren't my own? And I, I found great value in that. The, the perfect example of this, by the way, just to go on a bit of another tangent, because why not, is Todd Bilby on Flight Through Entirety and his absolute adoration for the Sixth Doctor and that era. And, you know, Prior to that, I was like, I am not having a bar of this. This is the worst era of the show. There is no redeeming features. But when I heard him talk so passionately, and this is you know, a, a clever man who has you know, made so many interesting points over a number of years on this podcast, I thought, I'm missing something here. I need to, I need to look at myself and think, why am I not even entertaining this idea? And so, you know, I went through a process over, over a period of time where uh, I'm not, never going to say that I'm going to be a huge fan of, you know, season 22 or 23, but I get it a lot more than I used to. And I'm still finding things in it that just go, oh, wonderful. Oh, I see what they were trying to do there. And sometimes it's um, as tragic, I guess, as, you know, Colin and Nicola playing against the script rather than with the yes. script. Um but, you know, those beautiful moments where, uh, you know, Colin and Nicola will sort of pop their heads around the corner in Vanishes of Varys and just go, hi, with a sunny hello. Yep. And it's like, <laughs> that's them. I see it now. That's what they were trying to do. Now, that's obviously not there all the way through, but I got to, I got to reevaluate that through the lens of, you know, Todd's um, experiences and, and, and what he shared on FTE. So that's been wonderful. And, you know, continuing sort of reappraising what I think I'm certain of a show that I, I feel like I'm so close to is, 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 is a great joy. But beyond podcasting, I guess the other thing that I've been doing 
And this is a, a lockdown passion project that sort of kept me sane for a long time, um, where it was quite strict here in Singapore for a long time. And uh, if you know Singapore, it's a very built-up area and there, there isn't much in the way of sort of getting out in the great outdoors as I might back home, for instance. And so my only real es- escape, if you like, was an hour a day at the end of work. I'd go up to the rooftop, there's 72 floors in the condo that I'm in, and I'd get a uh, my moleskin and a fountain pen, and I'd write one page a day. And the idea was, if you were to go to a Disney Plus or an Amazon or whatever, and start Doctor Who again from the very beginning, from an unearthly child, what would you need to do to the architecture of the entire show and each of the episodes to make it relevant, I guess, for a global, modern, 21st century audience. And I'd do this most days where I'd go up there, write a single page, come back, and it's kind of like Benny's Diary and the New Adventures, the sort of post-it notes all over it where I've sort of come back and with other thoughts <laughs> and um, refinements and the like. And now I've, over the last year or so, started to publish these um, with synopses of a few thousand words which um, I, I just can't help myself I probably oughtn't but it's it's a folly and I know that and it's going to take me years but I'm really just enjoying the process of working through this challenge and it's reimagining doctorwho.com and once a month or so I'll put up the next story in the reimagining um, and this is going to take me years and I'm I love that. I love that this is going to be something that I'll just chip away at. And look, I don't care. Again, kind of like with New to Who, five people listened, great. If if one person reads the blog, fine. But if nobody <laughs> reads it, I'm I'm also okay with that because this is about <laughs> me You've getting this it. idea. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and in some regards, it's kind of like the culmination, I guess, of my fandom in many regards, where I've built up an understanding of the show. I also have, you know, through my own experiences and education a clear understanding of um, you know literary and critical discourse and analysis and basically it's just allowed me to pull everything apart to then build it anew so that's that's kind of where 2023 2024 has, has taken me fantastic well, <laughs> thank you so much for for your wonderful story i've really enjoyed listening to that and just coming at doctor who from the books is so different to everyone else who finds it first through the tv show that's <laughs> a really unique take on on where doctor who has has been and in your life yes i guess it's i don't tend to do things normally but that's definitely <laughs> yeah, another example of that well that's not a bad thing overall <laughs> <laughs> i can't say it is mm-hmm so I'm not going to put the whole of the target book range into the library because <laughs> I have a feeling other people may want to bring some target books That's down the years over fair. the years. But yeah. I am going to make a special place for Castrovalva, which will take Yay. its place to Doctor Who magazine issue 265, which Dave Rennie brought in the last episode. Mm. So it will take its place there. And the, the entire Ham fam, including yourself, are part of the, the library <laughs> now. So at least we've got something to read. <laughs> Yeah, so it's kind of like the Space Museum, isn't it? We're sort of trapped behind the, the purse Yes. <laughs> so I'm not going to steal lots of shelves to put all the books on yet. So but that book will be passed around, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. 
all I've got to say is thank you very much, Stephen, for your time. And um, it's been an absolute delight talking to you and finding out your story. Oh, thank you, Sire. I, I appreciate you indulging me, um, but I'm absolutely loving the podcast and the personal stories that are being brought by uh, so many members of the Ham Fam and beyond. So this is an absolute joy. And for you to have asked me, I'm so honoured. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. So I hope you'll join us next time when someone else will bring an object and their story to the Library of Impossible Things. Thank you and goodbye. We're seeing you.